Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Julia for sure. How are you doing, Julia? Good, John. How are you? I'm all right, thank you. And Phil Oakley, how are you, Phil? Not bad, thanks, John. Excellent. And uh, Phil, you've this week written in your uh, Alpha newsletter lots of stuff that uh, that is in your sector, Julia. So we can have we can have an excellent debate here today. Um, and also, there's been some big, big news stories also in your sector, Julia. It's been a busy week for you. It has been a busy week. So busy that you haven't actually had time to cover all the results. But, yeah, no, some of them had to be picked up by others. But indeed, but uh, but but we we're all on the same page. Um, so we're going to talk about Unilever. We're going to talk about Stagecoach, which you did right, and and Phil's got some uh, some old war stories from that that sector. We're going to talk about Stobar, another transportation story which we have talked about previously, but there was a big development there this week, and some other stuff from the, the food and drink uh, industry, which seems very appropriate just before Christmas. Where should we start? Shall we start with the first page of the news section then, Stobart, uh, which has cut its, its uh, fourth quarter dividend. This, this can't have gone down well. Uh, no, the shares certainly did go down. But uh, yeah, it's the first stage of what they've called this capital review, and if the first step is to cut the dividend, it's not really looking too optimistic. It's quite disappointing because we tipped Stobart about a year ago, I think. Mm. And we tipped it um, in part as an income play uh, since at that point, like dividends had before that been yielding about 8%. And while that does seem like it should be a red flag, the company was adamant that they had this structure where um, asset sales should back up the dividend until about 2023, at which point their plans to increase the capacity in the energy business and also expand London South End Airport. London South End. That's stretching it a bit. <laughs> Every single time, you always get on that point. It's just ridiculous. Anyway, sorry. But uh, yeah, anyway, um, at that point, uh, yeah, profits from those expansions were expected to kind of take over and maintain the dividend from there. And that's clearly unraveled in so the past 12 months. What's gone wrong? There's uh, been a bit of a ballroom shenanigans going yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, the whole, it's, yeah, we tipped it about a year ago. And ever since, uh, yeah, it's just been a bit of a dog's breakfast ever since then, starting with the, the kind of board infighting where the founder tried to get rid of the chairman and it backfired. But, uh, I mean, still quite a significant proportion of shareholders did vote to kick him out. And he is going to step down next year. And, and then, yeah, the transport industry itself has certainly been... Uh, a difficult place to be operating in right now. Yeah, but I mean, Stobart's not a, it's not a big airport. I mean, you know, London South End Airport, it's not a big airport. You know, oh, Ryan, no, Ryanair's, Ryanair's coming in. Uh, yeah, Ryanair you know, and a, EasyJet have quite big operations there. But so, so, uh, plans to, anyway. Oh, pl- exactly. Yeah. Plan- EasyJet's definitely there. Ryanair coming in. Mm-hmm. Flight B obviously is there. Not so great. But, not, but not yeah, long. But, but you know, this, this sounded like a nice little structural growth story here for, yeah, for it's, a smaller operator yeah, in the sector. Yeah, it's quite disappointing. We've, I've now taken it to a hold just because it's kind of unraveled since then. But yeah, between the, the growth story with South End and the energy business and these kind of generous dividend payments, it seemed uh, like a good play at the time and it just hasn't panned out. Mm. Um, I mean, the, tell me about the energy business. I don't really... This is the this kind of less exciting side of things. But, but I mean, again, you would have thought biomass, it's, it's kind of in the renewable space. This, this is a good place to be. Yeah, you'd think so. And the kind of one of the ambitions for that is they wanted to have sort of end to end, like fully integrated. And they're still planning to. I mean, the plans is that by 2022, they'll be able to supply three million tons of biomass per year. And it's, and it's growing fast. And yeah, side it's, of things. It's, it's on track. I mean, we should caveat this in the sense that it like I have taken it to a hold, but there isn't really anything to suggest that they can't uh, achieve these goals. The these because they yeah the two main goals are three million tons of biomass per year by 2020 and then having five million passengers through London South End Airport. 
by or just Southend Airport. They call, but, it, they call it what they like. It's got a train into London, I suppose. That's true. But yeah, having five million passengers in by then, and it's making progress on both these fronts. And so there's, I mean, they, these goals still look achievable. But in the meantime, I think it's just best to move to the sidelines for now, just in case. I mean, it seems like they've kind of made a lot of grand promises and then things unravel. Yeah, I mean, the dividend is still not awful. No. Uh, you it's, know, it's, it's, it's... Yeah, 3.4% is nothing to scoff no, at. But no, not, not terrible at all. But, but anyway, um, we're less bullish than we were, and, uh, 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 but not bailing entirely because... There could be uh, there could be some better news yeah, on the horizon. Yeah, there's still light at the end of the tunnel. Ab- absolutely. Let's stick to uh, let's stick to transport uh, and stagecoach, which I know you covered in the results section. Um, stagecoach, I mean, the entire transport industry, the passenger transport industry, has looked horrible for years. And I know, Phil, this is this is uh, this is kind of where you cut your teeth in the city. Tell us your stagecoach war story before we come on to the to the meat of this this latest update. When I started out as a city transport analyst nearly 20 years ago now. My first ever job when I walked into the office was work, the company I was working for, the broker that I walked into, was arranging or part of the fundraising, equity fundraising, to buy for Stagecoach to buy this business called Coach USA, which was a you know mishmash of different bus businesses in terms of you know regular transit, commuter buses, Big sightseeing businesses. They even had a taxi business when when they when they uh, bought the business. And that was my that was my baptism of fire, having to try and go around and sell this deal to investors to to, to part with their money and fund stagecoach acquisition of of Coach USA. And pretty much after they, almost you know, a few months after they bought this business, problems started to appear. Um, and it seems that they've never really gone away. Stagecoach, the, the amount of write-offs of goodwill and asset value write-offs um, has been absolutely massive. I, I, I forget the price that they paid for this. I think it was something, I don't know, $1.5 billion or something like that from memory, maybe a little bit more. I mean, a lot of that has been burnt, really, mm. been, dis- been destroyed. So, so I guess the big news this week is what you've covered in the results is that this business that has proved so problematic over the years, they're now selling. Hindsight, if only you'd known at the time, but just coach businesses in North America have been just turned into a bit of a disaster. First Group did something similar recently too when they sold uh, part of the Canadian operation for their Greyhound bus business. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, and yeah, now Stagecoach is trying to get rid of it. It's put it up for sale. It hasn't sold it yet. Do we know what price it's is looking for? Uh, no, they haven't said anything. I asked, but anything, they were quite tight-lipped. Anything you can get. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the market seemed happy. The market seemed very happy that, that, with this news. Yeah, I mean, it's just because these businesses have been a drag on things like First Group and Stagecoach. It's just there's no growth there. It's the Now that short-haul air, like, uh, airfares have become much cheaper, there's just not really any incentive to sit on a bus for... 10 hours when you can be there in probably two on a plane. Yeah, it's a big old place, America. Mm. I remember actually when I was out there on that trip and someone someone remembers talking about the uh, the long-distance coach business and the, the comment that came out was that the only people that really got on those buses was someone who'd just come out of the asylum. 
<laughs> a friend of mine did travel. Um, a friend of mine got married in Houston, and another friend uh, decided to extend his holiday and travel from Houston to Austin on a Greyhound bus. He said it was one of the most terrifying experiences yeah, well, of his life. Greyhound has a terrible reputation in Canada. I, I'm Canadian, but because uh, there were people that were decapitated on it. Uh, not, not, not on a bus that you've been on. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was not on the bus at the time. But yeah, it was, it was a few years ago. made headlines everywhere. And I think it happened twice. And so even just weird things like that, they just, they just really bad reputation. Yeah. So, so I mean, let's, let's go back to Stagecoach, just away from mm. decapitation. Yeah. Um, now that, that uh, Stagecoach has been decapitated, <laughs> this, this, this uh, troublesome bus business, North, North American bus business, what's left? So the market like this, the shares, the shares are up as a result. But what's left? I mean... I mean, do we really like what's left? Uh, not not particularly. I mean, we have it on a sell. So, uh, and yeah, the first thing that jumps to mind is UK Rail, which is a notoriously difficult business to I, run. I mean, being a commuter, I would not put my money in UK Rail. No, I mean, whenever I think of UK Rail, I just think of the National Express bosses saying there's no way in hell that they'd ever even consider going back into UK Rail. And the business has been better for it since. They've learned the hard way. They did, yeah. Uh, in fact, all of these main, main operators have... have I think rail, rail used to be incredibly lucrative for these companies. And because you're dealing in a sector where there is very little growth, um, rail franchises were seen as a, you know, a source of profit growth. And it pushed up all the prices for them... Companies had to rely on very, very bullish projections of future revenue growth to try and make the deal stack up. And of course, those those revenue projections never materialise and you end up with, you know, in Stagecoach's case, also National Express's case, on the same franchise actually, the East Coast mainline, massive, massive losses. And Stagecoach has got a problem with its rail business because most of its franchises now are, are going to run out next year. And it's going to be very interesting to see if that it, it can retain East Midlands and its stake in Virgin Rail Group because the East Coast debacle will not have won any friends with the government. And it will be very interesting to see whether it lost Southwest Trains to First Group last year, uh, which, it, which it had run since privatisation for over 20 years. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see whether they can retain uh, these rail franchises, and at what and at what cost? Mm. Um, I mean, the whole rail franchising thing. I, I, I my, my, it's broken. My, it's a broken. It's, broken. it's a completely Absolutely. flawed, broken model. I mean, I've been commuting for you know from where I am for bet for ten years. I think we've had three operators in that time. You know, and, and there's no difference. All that, all that really, really, all that really happens is you get, yeah, from time to time you get some new rolling stock, which isn't financed by. The rail franchisee. Well, they're infrastructure companies. That it's financed by a bank. Yep. Um, there's nothing that goes on the balance sheet, really, of these train operating companies. It's the same staff. Big two-pay staff transfer. So different uniforms, different paint on the coaches. Pretty much the same service. It's complete nonsense of the system, which has not really delivered value for the taxpayer, or indeed. For a lot of shareholders in in rail companies, and certainly not commuters, uh, it's, it's coming up to season ticket renewal time. Well, we are the most expensive rail rail fares in Europe now. It's it's yeah, it's it's, it's 
it's horrifying how much I have to spend getting to work uh, each year. Yeah. Um, it does feel very much like shuffling the deck chairs around the Titanic of the UK rail industry. But, uh, <laughs> but there you go. I mean, Stagecoach does have another business which is proving slightly more successful, which is the um, the, the UK bus business. Yeah, UK but buses. The, but you have to wonder whether it, you know that too will become subject to the same politicisation as rail has. Yeah, and I mean, it, UK bus has been better, but it hasn't been without its problems already. I mean, it's the regional services that have done quite well which you would kind of think is because you don't really have the option to take the train. Also, there's and, not many of them. I mean, this, the, the, yeah. the, the, the obligations that they, they're under in, in providing regional bus services, I mean, you know, it's certainly rural bus services. I mean, you know, it's, it's a bus every two hours where I am. Yeah, this, this hasn't worked either. No, it hasn't. And I think, you know, the political risk is that, is that you know, L- L- the London bus market has, has become, is, is, is a regulated bus market. And... In some ways, the London bus market has worked quite well for passengers. Yeah, it's, not, it's cheap. £1.50 a day. Yeah. Uh, whereas the regional bus market... And this, this is the threat that comes up every, every few years that local authorities or the government is going to take back control of, of regional bus markets. It's going to become a regulated market. In some ways, actually, that may not be a bad thing. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be a bad thing for, for companies because you just don't know what price they're going to be done on. Mm. Um, but, so but, but for me, a single, a single journey, say, from Malden to Chelmsford, five, £5.40. I mean, it's, it's obscene. The, and it's again, the same for school, for school journeys. are yeah. not that much cheaper. I went with my uh, son, two-mile journey on the bus. We should have walked. I think it was raining, so we got the bus. And it would have been cheaper for me to park, cheaper for me to actually go and drive and park than for me and my son to get the bus. So the fares are completely out of kilter. So th- this industry is a mess uh, as well, but there isn't really a lot of growth in it. I mean, if you look at the numbers, uh, there was no mention in the statement of any passenger growth at all. I think they just jacked the fares up and got some lucrative uh, bus rail replacement um, business from Derby. And, um, and of course, in London, where Stagecoach was in, out, back in again, it's not really working. So there isn't really a lot of growth in this business. I don't know what Julia thinks, but I don't think there's a well, lot of growth in this business. Yeah, we've got it on a sell, so I not, not definitely much, agree. It's not, not, much not a good business for, to be in right now. Not much love for this business around this time. Really not. <laughs> not <laughs> or affect the industry as a whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, should, we, should, we, should we turn some good news? Uh, sure. Let's I mean, some good news. Let's get some good news. Um, I know you didn't cover it this week, but you mm-hmm. know it well, and Phil covered it in your alpha uh, update. Uh, Britvic, which is doing well. Well, this was a company that, that over the years, you know, has had its fair share of troubles, but but has really turned itself around. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it seems like they've uh, kind of their biggest achievement lately is just managing this transition of uh, cutting the amount of sugar that's in their products quite well. And it's mm. proving quite popular. And I guess it's the kind of motivated in two senses. One, from a tax sense with this, uh, the sugar tax that was introduced on drinks back in April. And then also the trend that millennials just aren't really interested in sugary drinks anymore. And yeah, they have a huge children's uh, drink portfolio. So I guess that kind of plays right into that, you know. Yeah, that you, as well. You don't want to be feeding your, your children lots of, lots of sugar for, for the obvious reasons. But yeah, I mean, it's, the sugar tax is not the only headwind they've had to overcome this year. I mean, all beverage companies have faced this carbon dioxide problem. Yeah, it was a big one for the pub groups as well, actually. But I, I think, uh, yeah, it was huge for everyone. Yeah, I mean, for it, it was a real and stuff. And it, yeah, anything that has any fizz to it. But. It was a, it was a real thing. I was uh, I was up in uh, Southwold and I spoke to, to the uh, the head brewer at Adams, and yeah, no, it was a real thing. They were worried. 
they were definitely worried. What do you, what do you make of Brit Vic, Phil? I know uh, you're, you're you're quite bullish on this. I've one. always quite liked it, but as it, uh, it's always seemed to be fighting against something, fighting a fire somewhere over the years. And I think one of the, one of the things that makes it quite an attractive business is it does have a very decent portfolio of drink brands. Underpinning all of this is the 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 license that they have to produce and sell Pepsi and 7up Lipton tea from PepsiCo in the UK and Ireland. Obviously on the sugar-free theme Pepsi Max and 7up free have been very much tuned into that market development. And then they back it up with a portfolio of their own brands like um, Robinson's, Fruit Shoot, R. White's is another one. Uh, J2O. J2O. That's a biggie. Yeah, and they've got a natural energy drink as well, which is doing well, called Purdy's. And um, this business is is doing okay. You know, the, the, the soft drinks market also in the UK seems to be in quite a happy place right now and for the for for a lot of years a lot of aggressive discounting in this market made it very difficult in terms of pricing and preserving and grabbed the sales and margin and it seems quite calm at the moment and i think there's a good chance of it of it staying that way but i think one of the other things i like about this company is that it's been investing a lot of money in um Production and distribution assets. It's moved its head office, didn't it? Used to be, uh, used to be, used to be, used, used to be about a mile and a half from where I live. Not anymore. And the building's been empty for about five years. Has it really? Yeah. And they had, they made Pepsi on the other side of Chelmsford, and then they had a big factory at Norwich as well. And these, the Norwich factory's about being closed down. The Chelmsford factory's being closed down. And what they've got now is they've got what they refer to quite eloquently as a spine going right up the middle of England. So starting at London, rugby, and then Leeds. And this is going to create a much more efficient distribution. It gives them capacity to grow, but it also takes out costs. You have fewer road miles, and you get an efficiency gain, a distribution gain with modern, well-invested plant. And this has been sucking cash out of the business for the last couple of years, and this is going to stop. So I think that the sales part of Britvic is in a reasonably good place now. I My guess, I think that sales forecasts look a bit light to me. And I think we've got the possibility now of some potential margin kicker from this more efficient distribution and production facilities that they've got. And then you've got a big cash flow kicker as well as the capex comes down from like 130, 140 million, probably to half that level. So you're going to get a lot of cash flow. The debt's going to come down. It supports the dividend. And adding that up with the fact that you've got a share trading on, what, just over 14 times next 12 months earnings, 3.5% dividend yield, something like that, I'd rather own this share than Feverdry. Um, I think this is a maybe not as exciting but if you look at the risk-reward trade-off, you look at the valuation involved here, I, I quite like this. I have to say, that share price, I mean, it's, it's a rare sight in the, the current market to see one that's going north rather than <laughs> south. Yeah, true. I mean, they're trading at a bit of a premium to their kind of history. But, I mean, the way that Phil puts it, it sounds like it's well-deserved. But when you talk about the history, I mean, the history, as I, as I mentioned earlier, was beset with problems. Yes, so, you know, they, they were always they were always trading at a discount to, to their long history uh, because they had had so many problems. 
Um, so, so maybe we need to, to, to perhaps have a think about this one. It's, yeah. a, it's a different business as well. It's, you know, like AG Bar, these guys own their production assets, whereas Fevertree and Nichols, who make Vimto, they don't. So it is always going to look not as not going to look as profitable or cash generative or return on capital as those other two businesses. But um, you've got a very nicely well diversified uh, portfolio of brands there, which I quite like. Yeah, it's got some international stuff that's not doing quite so well at the moment. Yeah, yeah. France and Brazil uh, in particular during the reported period were uh, rather difficult. But I mean, most of their businesses in the UK. So yeah, the Irish business has has been doing very well, and they've they've bought some extra distribution there as well, which will help them in that market as well. Right. So this is this is one of the few shares I quite like right now. Wow. Wow, the OKC of approval. <laughs> Crime, crumbs. For a miserable, miserable person like me, yeah. Let's stick with, uh, let's stick with drinks um, uh, and go back to the, uh, to the new spotlight. And uh, this is a drink that I know you don't like, Phil. Horlicks. He's nodding his head and looking like he's about to be yeah, sick. Yeah, he's looking all disgusted <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Horlicks was uh, part of uh, GSK's um, consumer goods portfolio and it sold it. Yeah, it sold it to Unilever. For 3.3 billion euros. Yeah, that's a big number. Can't that can't just be Horlicks then? No, it's uh, they um, describe it as uh, GSK's health food drinks portfolio in India, Bangladesh, and 20 other predominantly Asian markets. Yeah, so there, there's so, a funny story behind this, isn't there? Why Horlicks is popular in in the Indian subcontinent? I think it's, it's about there's a, a very strong tradition in India of parents mothers giving horlicks to their children absolutely as a food supplement and health product yeah even though if you go elsewhere there'll be some people who say it's anything but healthy this drink it's certainly not healthy the way i milk isn't it yeah yeah yeah. um, but it has immense brand power um Obviously, Unilever have got a foothold in the Indian market, but I don't. I've not seen how much profit it made. Did they disclose a figure how much money it was making for the that specific division? At for, for how much was Horlicks making in terms of profit? Uh, yeah, in twenty eighteen, it made five hundred and fifty million euros um, in sales. Right, but it doesn't give a profit figure. So they've paid. But yeah, ninety percent of this is coming from India as so well. They paid six and a half and a bit times sales for it. Yeah, it's it's a pr- it's a pricey deal. But they've always exactly. wanted that Indian, that, yeah, that emerging India's, markets exposure. Yeah, India in particular too, but yeah, emerging markets in general. It's in that sense, uh, I mean, it's a good deal for them on two fronts, really. It's the like the emerging market exposure, increasing that. And also, like, they say it also plays into this idea of like the health food trend, but I. Well, that's why. It is. That's yeah, why. It's, just, the, it's, it's, it's a different thing. one that they've been kind of arguing recently. Before, when they've been like, we really want to pursue this uh, uh, trend of like healthy lifestyle. It's been when they've bought all those tea brands, like they bought like Puka last year, and they've. Uh, it's been things like that. So Horlicks seems to be kind of a, it, a different kind of healthy lifestyle, but it is. But it, but it has a, it has a health angle. As I was going to say earlier, it's not healthy the way I do. I have a Horlicks before bed every now and then, but with a nice little bit of rum in the top. That's <laughs> it's quite nice. I think there was a lot of competition for this. I know a few months ago. Um, AB Foods talked about looking at this business, but I think they were they were determined not to pay a silly price for it. Um, yeah, I mean, looking at that valuation, you'd think that there must have been quite a lot of 
bidding competition for this. Yeah, yeah. It's it's uh, it's kind of Paul Palmer's last hurrah as well. I don't think we've talked about that on this. Yeah, this podcast. he's stepping down in the new year. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not uh, not taking a backseat to deal making just yet. Kind no, no. One last hurrah after it's been a. I mean, it, it's been a horrible year. It's for him. not been a good year for him. No, no, no. As, as they said in the Spectator article, which is where I read about the Indian uh, maternity angle to, to Horlicks. Um, yeah, they, they, the Horlicks comparison with how he handled the, uh, the the UK head office thing was was made, and it's fair. That's kind of that kind of did for him, really. Yeah. No, I think. Uh, I mean, there had been talk about him retiring for a while, but I mean. You could speculate that that maybe expedited the process a little bit. Do we do we know who's coming in in uh, in his place? Uh, yeah, his name's Alan Jope. He's currently the head of personal care. So nice uh, internal uh, transfer. Yeah, seems to be taken quite well. Yeah, uh, here to um, the business, and we like it too because we've obviously kept the shares on a buy yep, despite the recent troubles. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, this deal it looks like it'll be a good one. I mean, the Emerging Market Markets Division of Unilever has been growing fairly well. It was at uh, sales growth of, I think, 4.5% at the last set of results. So, I mean, for a consumer goods business, I think that's pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I, I, just while we're on that page, GSK, obviously the, the seller of that, has, mm. has already spent some of the money on a, on a big acquisition this week, which I don't think the market was massively keyed on. Uh, in the oncology space i think but i struggle to keep up with pharmaceuticals i have to say let's uh, let's stick with the same page uh we talked about it very briefly last week but we've got the dignity thing here which you can read a bit more about we spoke about it last week um so we don't really need to go uh into that again let's now move over to to phil's column uh because this week you've looked at uh right move which is another company that can seem to do no wrong um and you've uh, you've kind of run the phil slide rule over it uh kick the tires um what have you found phil um i can see why a lot of people like this business um i don't think i've come across a business in over 20 years i've been doing this that is as impressive in churning out profits return on investment cash flows and growing at the same time i I think this is probably the most profitable business on the london stock exchange um, in terms of profit margins free cash flow margins return on capital and it's been growing at the same time and it ticks a lot of boxes in terms of a business that has one of those common terms that we hear now, an economic moat. It is a business that, when it's as profitable as that, you expect a lot of competition. And there is some competition. There is some competition. Uh, you have you have Zoopla, obviously, and, and on the market as well. But they have not managed to dislodge this company or throw it off course. And one of the things I look into, I spend a lot of time in the column, actually, is looking at, you know how how resilient this business actually is and you know, one of the key drivers of its success is that it's been able to drive up something called the average revenue per advertiser by an incredible amount in the last 10 11 years um the average revenue per advertiser has increased fourfold and given that right move has a lot of fixed costs the leverage on that growth is amazing in terms of how it's just fed through to incremental profits, incremental cash flows. Companies use that cash flow to 
retire they retire about a third of the shares and so you've had a a turbocharged business and turbocharged investment the issue is now obviously how sustainable is this because it's not it's not really a secret that if you look at a state agency, this is a business that's facing up. Who are the main, obviously the main customers of uh, of, of Right Move? It's, it's more than three quarters of the business, uh, with house builders being you know, the next sort of twenty odd percent. Um, state agents are facing up to a lot of problems now, and you know when you've been asked to pay a thousand pounds a month on average per branch to Right Move every month, that is a significant overhead when the number of instructions you don't get if you don't sell you don't get paid and the number of instructions the number of sales is going down so a state agency is really being squeezed not only by a slowing market but pressures on commissions the rental business which has kept kept a lot of the state agents afloat over the last decade tenant fees are being banned next year so there's a chunk of margin coming out of that business and what I'm essentially asking is that can is right move in danger of biting the hand that feeds it in that how how much more can it keep pushing um, by asking estate agents to pay more and more and more of their monthly overhead over to them? I guess though, Right Move has been a beneficiary. So you know the the extra expenditure that estate estate agents have put through Right Move is money that those estate agents would have once spent advertising, for example, in the local paper. This is the bull case for this is what this was actually brought up about two years ago, just under two years ago, when the figure of two and a half thousand pounds per month was mentioned, which is what the estate agents, on average, were spending with local newspapers in, in terms of advertising their properties mm. and local newspapers i mean they're dying there's there's they're, no other way they're pretty much it. dead they're pretty much dead we saw johnson press the other week you know having an absolute shocker yeah uh, and and that malaise is is there's and no it, turnaround in sight there and of course the, the development of digital advertising has brought down has massively increased competition in advertising and it put, puts pressure on rates so i'm not convinced that this two and a half thousand now the bulls of right move will you know may say look company wants to get to two and a half thousand state agency has changed you know we have a different housing market now we have a very difficult housing market we have a lot of competition we have the online agencies who are trying to make money and not making money and uh, in fact one of them went into administration yeah uh, e move yeah and uh, and you know purple bricks i think that's barely that's just profitable in the uk but not, not very much and the pool of cash that these agents have is is under pressure. I mean, the, the fact that these alternative models of estate agency are struggling, does that kind of say, though, that, you know, the sort of uh, predictions of the demise of traditional high street estate agency were rather premature? Maybe, but I think there's just too many estate agents. It's, you know, you talk about how, you know, I talk on one hand how tough estate agency is, but actually there's, there's more than, the, than there ever has been. You know, the barriers to entry of setting up an estate agency is actually quite low. And some, some of these agents... Or you know, well, they're still they're still paying right move. They feel that they have to be on there. This is a this is a website which is one of the most popular websites in the UK, and it has become the go to place for people looking to buying houses or renting houses. And the agents, the the level of retention is sort of ninety four percent. So these 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 customers are not moving away from right move, despite the alternative of Zoopla. And then you've got 
an upstart in the form of On The Market. Which was set up by estate agents. Set up about three and a bit years ago called um, Agents Mutual, I think the name was. And this was all about trying to curb the dominance of right move. And it's not really been managed as well as it could have been. And it's listed on the AIM market and it's got some money and it's moved away from being a mutual. Now it's got shareholders to please, which you know may cloud its business strategy a bit. But what it's been doing, it's been offering free 12-month trials to agents and it's now got about 11,000 advertisers. Right Moves about 17,500. Zoopla's about 15,500. And obviously the agents say, well, if it's free, I'm going to take it. And what on the market is hoping is that after the free period has expired, that these people, these agents stay with it. But that, that, remains, that remains to be seen. I mean, Right Move is trying very, very hard. It's not just an advertiser. It does offer a lot of data services, branding, marketing help for agents. It's not just an, it's not just an advertiser. It's trying to offer more products to get the average spend up. And obviously for some agents, that, that is worthwhile. For the smaller sort of one-man band agents, I'm not so sure. But I think probably what will happen that makes life difficult for Right Move is the next housing market downturn. Yeah, and if you look at that, that uh, average revenue per advertiser uh, graph, 2008, 9, 10 were pretty flat. Yeah. When the, market was, when the housing market was really on its knees, yeah. they couldn't grow the, the ARPA. They couldn't, and obviously, you know, the ARPA is three times higher than that now. And so if if we get to a situation where the number of agents starts to fall, or you just get agents say, look, hey, I, I just can't afford this, and I'm going to move to Zoopla or on the market, um, it's it's possible that this is this is the chink in the R. And you are big, there are a couple of little chinks um in right move they they've not been able to grow their number of advertisers and also the number of leads that they've been getting for those advertisers is is a little bit below or 10 15% below actually what they were getting 2 3 years ago and right move will argue that their quality of leads is still a lot better than everybody else but just a bit of bit of a sign there that for those who want to say, oh, is, is this peak right move? And the dangerous thing with any sort of business model is if you are reliant on price rather than volume, i.e. Like selling more stuff to drive your revenue, it's, it's, there's, there's always a little bit of concern there that sooner or later either the customer won't accept it and go somewhere else or... The economics of the customer's business just say, look, I just can't pay this. Mm-hmm. And this is what's seen the sell-off. And there's been quite a big sell-off in Right Move. And the business has been derated. As and, the shares aren't expensive. I mean, 23 times earnings for a business like this doesn't seem yeah, I mean, eye-watering. No. I mean, it's interesting that the uh, this week the Fundsmith um, Small and Mid-Cap Investment Trust announced Right Move as one of their top 10 holdings. Mm. I can see why. Um, I, I just think that this is this is a business that's done very very well in many many ways. This is absolutely outstanding company on, as you say, not an eye watering valuation for a business of this quality. I just think that um, you have to keep an eye. Obviously, no, no one knows when the housing market's going to turn down. It is turning down, 
The new build market is still supportive for Rightmove, uh, but that's not the biggest chunk of its business. And then obviously we'll see what happens with the competition, but uh, the competition is not really hurting this business at the moment. Mm-hmm. But very, very interesting study. Um, and my, my, my guess is that it will be a housing market downturn that will stop this business in its tracks. Yeah, which will come at some point. But, but then, you know, we, know, we kind of know what to look out for in, in terms of the, the, the kind of pain points that this company faces. And, and actually, you know, uh, its quality will not disappear. There will be a housing correction. It's not going to go anywhere. There may be an opportunity to buy this company very cheaply at some point. It comes down to, you know, the most important factor is what's this company's sustainable growth rate and how can it achieve it? Because I find it difficult to th- to think how it can actually bring more estate agency advertisers on board. I think you know the market's pretty saturated now in terms of estate agents, even including online estate agents. And so I think it is very very reliant on on driving the price up, and that would be my my main concern for this business. One to keep an eye on. Yeah. Should we, uh, should we wrap up uh, the, uh, the podcast today with uh, sandwiches? Talk about Greencore then? Yeah, let's, let's talk about Greencore. I used to like this business. Yeah. You know, not a lot of people did. No. But it I was... kind of did. It's done well over the years. I Tried mean, to get into North America. Yeah, it, not very successfully. No. And it's now exited it. Do, but, they like, uh, do they like sandwiches in North America? In the same way that we seem to eat nothing but sandwiches at lunchtime. I don't know. The whole box sandwich thing isn't really a thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, we like our sandwiches. But apparently not as much as Green Corps would have liked us to like our sandwiches. Because yeah, it's now sold its US business for just over a billion dollars. And yeah, it's, it's a bit disappointing just in the sense that they had these big ambitions to grow the US business. They'd bought uh, this company called Peacock to sort of expedite that process. And it just, it didn't work. And uh, we had uh, Greencore on a sale before this on the basis that the US business was just a total drag. And we've now uh, moved Greencore to a hold now that that US business is gone. And the, yeah, some of the proceeds are going to be used to, well, the shareholders have an option to participate in a tender offer. And then, then apart from that, uh, anything that's left over will be returned as like a special dividend. And so lots of money coming back. Potentially, it is, yeah, and I think it'll be in better shape after now that the U.S. business is gone. I mean, it was a, kind of a nice idea in theory, and it just didn't pan out. Mm. I mean, we talked about saturation in the uh, the estate agency market. I mean, the sandwich market is surely is, there's no there's not much room in the sandwich. Yeah, market. convenience foods. It's just it's such a competitive business that it's uh, yeah hard to really grow those profits. But but I guess Greencore. I mean, its strength is that it it, it supplies so much of this market for so many customers. Yeah, that is true. I mean, and I think it's done that quite well in the UK. I think that that uh, that market will continue to be its core, and it tried to replicate that in the US, and it just it didn't work. Mm. I think it's been so long standing in the UK that having that longevity has worked in its favour. Another example of a, a British business going to America and not succeeding <laughs> seems to be a common theme oh it's it's, it's, a, it's a famous quote isn't it you, the u.s is the graveyard of uh, many british businesses mm. i think you know i think many companies have tried to try to make it out there sainsbury's i think many years back yeah uh, stagecoach yeah m&s have a big push there m&s too, didn't i work. think yeah. tesco tesco oh my goodness that was a disaster uh yeah Stick to the UK if you're a UK food business. That's not to say that there aren't some. A lot of our engineering businesses have got successful US operations. Well, that's true. And we talked about Diageo last week. But We're I hoping think, that the gamblers will do quite well over there too. We but. are hoping that the gamblers <laughs> do quite well over there. Yeah. 
Um, but yes, uh, I, I tried, tested, and uh, quickly uh, retreated, retreated from uh, uh, route of expansion there at the US market. But uh, Green Core, look, they look quite cheap. Ones to keep an eye on um, and see how it gets on uh, with, it, with a renewed focus on the UK. Yep, absolutely. Okay, well, uh, that's, uh, that's all we have time for this week. There is, uh, there's plenty more in uh, the magazine. We have um, uh, Algie's looked at uh, which sectors uh, look in best shape for 2019, a screen he runs every year. It's pubs and restaurants that have come out again, Julia. Yeah, you put it, Julia's putting a face and, and, and Phil's wa- I mean, waving his arms. Is, pubs, is maybe, safe? restaurants. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't like, I don't like either. It's a mechanical screen and, yeah, they, they came out top last year and it didn't, it really, uh, didn't really pan out that way in the end. Green King had some results this week. Yeah. Did you do? Fine, it was all right. Yeah. yeah. Um, World Cup was good. I yeah. Expected. Absolutely. Uh, sex Focus uh, is on uh, nickel, the commodity nickel. Um which uh, is apparently uh, going to uh, demand for which is going to be underpinned by the electric vehicle boom, which uh, never seems to happen as quickly as people think it's going to happen. Uh, the cover feature this week is, uh, is, has a very Christmassy feel. We're looking at uh, luxury goods and, and whether there is, uh, there's any value there. And actually, uh, whilst a £136 Gucci tie, don't look at me, may seem overpriced, uh, the, the shares in these companies still have a lot going for them. That's uh, Harriet Russell's feature there on, on luxury goods. John Barron's in the magazine this week looking at the UK market and why... Uh, it's perhaps as cheap as it's ever been uh, and, and attractively cheap rather than uh, disgustingly cheap. And so, uh, yeah, lots more in the uh, news section, lots of results. Still uh, about to wind down for Christmas now, thank goodness. Companies have finally put an end to the reporting season. And, yeah, lots lots and lots of the usual uh, excellent stuff. So uh, thank you, Julia. Thank you, Phil. Thank you all for listening. I don't think we're going to do a, a normal Companies and Markets podcast next week, but I think as is traditional, we do a big roundup, getting all the, the writers to talk about what's in store for their sectors in the year ahead. In the meantime, pick up this week's magazine, Worth It, Why It's Still Possible to Bag Share Bargains in Luxury Goods. We will catch up soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.